It's April 3rd, 2002, and families are lining up outside a big carnival-like attraction at the Cielo Vista Mall in El Paso, Texas. From what I remember, it was out in a parking lot. They've all bought tickets to do something special. You had to go inside of the cage. I was sitting in a chair. I believe from my recollection that the cat was in a cage right to the side of where you sat down and got your picture taken. But uh, this one was, he wasn't a cub. Well, that sucker probably weighed about maybe 400 pounds. Handlers lead the tiger towards the man, and he is handed a baby's bottle filled with milk. I would say that was the largest thing that ever sat in my lap. Let me pull up, see if I've got a copy of that picture. In this snapshot, a tiger completely dwarfs the man. His name is David Neal. In the photograph David emails me, he looks like an average 50-something, wearing khakis and a blue Oxford shirt. But nobody at this traveling exhibit knows his true identity. They had no idea that I was working undercover as an investigator for USDA. You got to do what you got to do for the job at the time. The superstars of magic. The mystifying. The most outstanding act in show business. Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy for 30 years did 12 to 14 shows a week, 48 weeks a year, and filled the showroom every single night. They were entertainers. They became big business, and they were responsible for an awful lot of people. To make it in show business, you don't have to be only good. You have to be different. This is Wild Things, Siegfried and Roy. Days after Roy is attacked by his tiger in front of a live audience, his condition is still uncertain. While Roy remains in the hospital with Siegfried by his side, the investigation into the attack launches. So, would you call yourself an animal person? Yes, I would consider myself an animal person. Just care for the way animals are treated. In the 1970s, David Neal joins the United States Department of Agriculture, which not only puts stickers on the beef you buy in the supermarket, but also regulates the use of all exotic animals in public settings across America. Most of us are unaware that the USDA has its own investigative unit, which is where David spends nearly 30 years working cases and going undercover. During my career, I worked a lot on bird smuggling at the border and animal and horses being smuggled in from Mexico. We had one individual that came across that had uh, the birds, kind of like the drug dealers, he had birds stuck all over his body. Listening to David discuss his job, I couldn't help but think of the 1994 movie Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Funny, it didn't seem that painful when you were doing it to the horse. The Jim Carrey character Ace Ventura is the only other detective I've ever heard of who specializes in animals. So I was surprised to learn that David has never seen the movie. But as I get to know David, I sense he is not someone who pays much attention to pop culture. He grew up on a farm in Louisiana. When I got my first horse, I guess I was 10 or 12. 
we started getting horses and uh, and a few calves to be outside to be with animals. We got it's like that lifestyle. One of the places I worked was a horse kill. Then some of these good horses that they were bringing in to slaughter, and they would euthanize it and then hang it up and you know and skin it up, and then we would have to inspect it. They would ship the meat to, to France. Just come to work and do your job and go home. But some, you know, you'd go home and sometimes just think about like that horse. You'd go home and think about him, and that really tore me up. Two decades later, on October third, two thousand three, David lands the biggest case of his career. I was at home, and it got on the news. With more than a thousand spectators watching in horror. Illusionist Roy Horn of Siegfried and Roy attacked by a white tiger during a performance in Las Vegas. Today's I called the office and they said, we've got an investigation. I said, I know it. I was basically packed and out the door within 45 minutes. When David's flight lands, he goes directly to the hotel where he always stays in Las Vegas. Even though he's now retired, he still won't tell me the name of the hotel but he says it's the one place where the staff always helps him keep a low profile. No one can know who David is or what he's doing in Vegas, especially not the media. This case had more publicity on it than any other case that I had worked. And I realized that it was, wasn't gonna be an open and shut case. I needed to collect some information just to get the basics of what actually happened. So I figured they had filmed video of each performance of Siegfried and Roy. So I asked for a copy of the tape. Instead of getting someone's eyewitness report of what happened. Because her eyes play tricks on us, you think? People, are, I guess, aren't really trained to see what actually happened. It's what they think they want to see. What questions were you hoping that the video would help you answer? Was the animal provoked? Did something happen to cause that animal to attack Roy? You've got to rule everything out, turn over every stone to make sure that you've got the right information and don't leave any question unanswered. It's December 1996 and a snow-white tiger has gone into labor at the Guadalajara Zoo in Mexico. The first two cubs arrive just fine, but the third, a male, is struggling. The exhausted mother doesn't notice, so Roy, who was there to purchase the cubs, springs into action. At least that's how he will describe this moment years later. What follows is a beat-by-beat account based entirely on Roy's own words. Rushing to the mama tiger's side, Roy steps in and cradles the newborn. The cub stabilizes briefly, but soon his little pink nose becomes cold and his lips turn blue. Roy leans down and performs mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Miraculously, the cub survives. Roy names him Monocore. Soon, 
Siegfried and Roy welcome all three baby tigers to the Jungle Palace in Las Vegas. There we go, yeah. Give me a nice smile. Give me a nice smile. Every time that a female gave birth to a calf, I mean, makes me feel very happy and makes me feel that I was part of, of life. Johan, Chira, and Monticor, yeah. Johan was the, the snow one. Uh, Monticor was the white striped and Shira was the, the orange one. I was kind of uh, the father of the three babies. When these cubs are born, Francisco Rodriguez Heron is the director of the Guadalajara Zoo. It's the largest zoo in Mexico with 360 species and 5,000 animals. For years, circuses had been approaching Francisco, asking if they could buy the zoo's surplus animals. He never entertains these offers though, because he is skeptical of how circuses care for animals. Francisco's reasonable skepticism also extends to a random phone call he picks up one day. I was in my office one time when I got a call from, from a person who identified himself as Bernie Human. He presented himself as the manager of Siegfried and Roy. I guess you are familiar with Bernie Human. Very much so. Uh, when I got that call, that I was uh, having a, a bad joke. You thought it was a prank phone call? Yeah. And he asked me if we have some white tigers available in surplus because they, they were interested in, in adding them to, to their uh, collection, to the famous white tiger collection. So I told Mr. Yumian to send me the, the proposal by fax in official stationery. And I was surprised that five minutes later, I got that uh, document in, in my fax machine. And it has the logo of the, the Siegfried and Roy. And I confirmed that it was coming from, from the right people. I got in, in contact with uh, Bernie again and told him we were expecting this female to give birth pretty soon. And he told me that, that they were definitely interested in one complete litter. And what did you learn about the facility they had and the details of how they cared for the tigers that made you feel comfortable? We sent a, a veterinarian to Las Vegas. She was very well impressed about the facilities. I'm a veterinarian. That's my main background. I was um, convinced that the way that they were dealing with, with animal care was the, the proper one. The Guadalajara Zoo is a, a self-sustained institution, and we had to rely on our own funds. At the end of the conversation, he was kind enough to tell me that they will contribute economically with our zoo. These tigers are each worth thousands of dollars. All of the cubs, even the orange one, carry the gene which can cause a genetic mutation that makes fur turn white. But the main reason Bernie has arranged for the purchase of these cubs is so that Siegfried and Roy can begin raising, training, and breeding their next generation of feline performers. They had in mind to, to tame these animals and, and to incorporate them in their show. In order to, to have new animals in, in their show, they have to have tame young ones. And that's how we decided to, to pull them away from their mother, 
for hand raising. They have to be hand raised. They first have the mother together and they get the mother's milk. Then we will take over and we will feed them uh, uh, just the milk formula like you would have with little babies. And then you introduce them to me until they're becoming strong and can eat totally by themselves. Roy claims he co-sleeps with the cubs until they're one year old. By then, each has grown to weigh about 200 pounds. Like bottle feeding, co-sleeping is part of what Roy calls affection training. That connection runs deep. We condition them that they can live in a world like ours today, together with us in harmony. Not every tiger has the right temperament for performing on stage. See, like with all our animals, we meditate with them, we condition them for the show. We always perform or create an illusion around animals. See, you never can do this with someone who is not happy and content. All three of the cubs in Roy's newest litter eventually wind up on stage. Roy spends more than six years building strong bonds with them. But as Francisco tells me, that bond can bend and sometimes even break. Wild animals keep their instincts and their behavior. No matter if you hand raise them and you tame them, they can be dangerous at all times. Do you know where the name Monocore comes from? Mr. Roy at that time told me that it was a mythical animal from, from the Persian culture. Yeah, it has a, the head of a human. Uh, it has the body of a lion. Sometimes it has the tail of a scorpion. But the word, if you break down the word manticore from Middle Persian, it means man-eater. To, to man-eater? <laughs> it seems amazing. I mean, amazing in the, in the bad sense. I mean, he was the one that, that attacked him and, and caused him fatal damage. I'm kind of shocked at this time. I mean, that's a bizarre name. I've never knew about it until now. Horn was attacked in the throat by one of those tigers. Montecor. 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 What was Montecor's mindset at the time? That particular night, something was different in Montecor's brain. And Troy, he said no to Montecor. No, 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 no. Don't hurt the tiger. Don't shoot Montecor. There's no blame on Montecor. Siegfried and Roy have never been confused about the fact that a tiger is a tiger. He did nothing wrong. He is still a part of the family and the family will still be together for the rest of our life. I walked into the trauma bay, and they're like, Roy's coming. My name is Jay Coates. At the time of Roy's injury, I was vice chairman of the Department of Trauma at UMC Trauma Center. They wheeled him in, and he was so combative because he was in the process of losing his airway. So it was kind of like drowning. I mean, this guy was in the active process of dying. He can't breathe. And so about two minutes into it, he actually did flatline. We lost vitals. I mean, he had massive injuries in his neck where the tiger had bitten him. We immediately went in, we opened his neck, put in an airway, got a line started, an IV started at the same time, gave him a round of epinephrine. All this 
technically while he's, you know, dead. He's got no heartbeat, he's got no blood pressure. And I've got about five minutes. And if I can get stuff rolling in five minutes, get your heart pumping, your blood flowing, I can at least preserve brain function, things like that. So, you know, we did a couple compressions on his chest. And his heart started right back up. You could just feel the whole room go, oh, you know. Bringing Roy back from the dead sounds miraculous, because it is. But the next, and even bigger challenge, proves to be just keeping him alive. He had two big puncture wounds right below his hairline, and then the one in his neck that bit through that bone, through the uh, third cervical vertebrae, and severed the vertebral artery. That injury by itself has a huge mortality rate. And when the tiger bit him, it crushed his carotid artery. So now you've literally cut off the blood flow to the right side of his brain. His brain is being deprived of blood, and it is also swelling. The problem with your brain swelling is it's got no place to go. So it starts pushing it down in the base of the skull. And, you know, the risk was he was going to herniate and die. So we decided to decompress his brain. Dr. Coates performs what's called a decompressive craniectomy. The details are pretty gnarly, but the short of it is that a piece of Roy's skull is removed temporarily. Who would have thought something like this was going to happen? But I mean, it was absolutely, obviously catastrophic. I mean, he was dying. As soon as I got done with the surgery, I went up and I talked with both Siegfried and Bernie. I told him what was going on, you know, just that I would keep them updated. The morning after surgery, he was under so many bandages and blankets. All, all you could really see were his eyes. You know, he had tubes coming out of his mouth. That's Alan Feldman, a spokesperson for the Mirage. But I saw his hand, which was out because he had IVs in it. And I kind of slid mine under his. And all I can remember saying is, you know, we're all praying for you, Roy. We all are praying for your recovery. And he just squeezed my hand. And just the fact that he could squeeze my hand was, it was somewhat amazing. As Roy remains in critical condition, very little information is made public. But Siegfried and Roy have never been ones to overshare, let alone offer up personal information. Siegfried and Roy are very, very private people. While working on their autobiography in 1991, Annette Tappert sees their penchant for privacy become an obstacle. No one knew anything about their personal life, even people that worked for them. When I went to interview them, they were protective. They were very careful about allowing me into their innermost thoughts, and they weren't giving me what I felt was a kind of resonant authenticity about themselves. But as Annette slowly builds a rapport with Siegfried and Roy, she comes to learn more about them and understands their reticence. They definitely have a great deal in common in terms of these dysfunctional backgrounds. And of course, when you grow up like that, in a family like that, it does make you really guarded going forward in the world. 
Roy was, you know, he was a real wartime baby. His mother, on the day she went into labor, it was a real bloody skirmish of bombings and lighting up all the neighboring cities. And she went into labor and uh, she didn't know what to do. And she climbed on her bicycle and desperately pedaled across the city. Bombs burst around her, but she reached the safety of her sister's home unharmed. Fifteen minutes later, Roy was born. Decades later, Roy's mother Johanna will live at the Jungle Palace until passing away in the year 2000. I can't imagine what it was like raising children in Nazi Germany. In broad daylight, mighty squadrons roar across the North Sea. Over Hamburg, tons of bombs rain from the skies. Siegfried, first time I interviewed him, first thing he said, you know, when when your birthday says 1939 Germany, you can imagine that someone has had a difficult life. When Siegfried is just a toddler, his father Martin becomes a prisoner of war. By the time Martin returns home, he is an alcoholic, prone to fits of rage. Eventually, an escape presents itself to young Siegfried. Siegfried came into magic by, there was a a show he saw in a town square and the person, you know, eating razor blades. He was so fascinated by that somebody could do something like that and draw uh, a crowd. And he found a magic shop and he would ride his bicycle into Munich and he bought magic books and with allowances and and things he couldn't even afford sometimes. And he learned how to do some magic and he disappeared a coin. And I worked very hard on a magic brick. I showed it to my father. And the first time my father talked to me, he said, how did you do that? The first time I got attention. And I think this two, uh, this few words was the opening line to my life. His father never paid any attention to him. So that gave him a great impetus to keep doing it. And magic became my life. Siegfried, he was always upfront about the struggles within his his family and his father's drinking, always. But Roy was guarded about his. Roy was clearly, the pain was so deep. I said, you're not going to have a great book unless you really tell me what happened and some very unpleasant things in your childhood. And I'll never forget this. We were in this, uh, in behind the jungle palace, they had a a little cottage. So we were interviewing for hours and and finally this moment happened and I started to cry and I said, you know, this is very hard for me too. I said, you're scared, I'm scared. It was a project of such magnitude for me uh, on a scale that I had never worked. And I said, you need to tell me what went on there up in Northern Germany. And Siegfried, who knew everything, looked at the both of us and said, I think I leave the two of you now. And Siegfried walked out and Roy and I sat there for three hours and he unspooled the story of his childhood and the whole time holding my hand like 
I, I mean, it was almost like I, you know, I was bruised. He held my hand so tightly while he was getting this story out and the tears and the, the pain that came out of him. I'll never get over it as long as I live. Roy's entry into love of animals was basically based on fear of his father. When his father, when he came back, he he had been, you know, sort of damaged from the war. Of course, there was drinking and violence. And the father was physically violent to Roy's mother and, of course, tried to be physically violent to Roy. Roy actually finds an escape within his family when they adopt a dog that supposedly comes from the German army. But it's not your average canine. I'm guessing that's why someone decides to name this dog Hexa, a German word that means witch. And that dog protected him against the father. So that's where the story starts. The abuse seemed to escalate at night with the alcohol. So Roy and his mother would lock themselves in Roy's bedroom at night and Hexa, a jet black dog who Roy always said was half wolf, you know, large mixture, was a ferocious looking dog, um, really acted as their guard dog. And Roy was ashamed of his home life and alienated from friends. And Roy was always the first to tell anyone that any sense of security he developed as a child came from Hexa. I had a wolf, Hexit, which actually is my closest friend. He was like Roy's playmate. They would explore and roam the fields that surrounded his childhood village of Nordenham in northern Germany. And it was really Roy's first seminal relationship with an animal. At one point, Roy was screaming for help to no avail when he found himself sinking in a muddy marsh wetland. And Hexa ran away and found some farmers working in the nearby field. The dogs started barking and jumping around these farmers. And they followed him to the spot where Roy was hanging on for dear life. And the farmers pulled him out with a ladder. When Roy thanked the farmers for pulling him out of the sinkhole, they told him that he should really thank his dog. And um, if it hadn't been for him, he would have died. For Roy, unconditional trust, unconditional emotion, and unconditional strength started with Hexa, and eventually he derived that from all of his animals. Roy's bond with exotic animals helps catapult Siegfried and Roy to stardom. It's 1966, and Siegfried and Roy have been invited to the French Riviera. The big sensation in Monte Carlo was the annual Red Cross gala that raised money, and Princess Grace was the chair of this, and they were asked to perform. Siegfried is 27 years old. Roy is just 21. This is a turning point in their career, which they recall years later on Larry King Live. Where, for want of a better term, was your big break? Uh, Monte Carlo, you Monte could say. Monte Carlo yeah. was the big break. What were you called? See if we didn't pat. <laughs> and, of course, it was always littered or populated by masses of celebrities because of, you know, Princess Grace being Grace Kelly. She would get everybody to come to this, you know, from Cary Grant to Frank Sinatra. So it was a major event. This is a huge opportunity for Siegfried and Roy 
who recently left the cruise ship. Their newfound fame is due in large part to Chico the cheetah. And the, the cheetah who were supposed to do the final finale jump on top. He didn't jump on the top of the illusion. He jumped into the audience and he walked it through all the tables, right past Princess Grace. And went into the kitchen. You know, everybody went like this, and, and I, well, what can you do? I just jumped off stage two and nonchalant. And it wowed everybody. This made your act. Huh? This that was the big was hit. The first standing ovation. You know, that's the count. They thought that something. was the act. Yes. The duo is lucky Chico didn't injure, let alone kill someone. Instead, the unplanned moment generates more press than the duo has ever had. One headline crowns them the new kings of Monte Carlo. Soon after, the magicians change their name from Siegfried and Partner to Siegfried and Roy. According to their autobiography, a mix-up with two talent bookers leads to an opportunity at the Tropicana Hotel in Las Vegas. It was Roy who was just itching to get to Las Vegas. He thought this was the greatest idea that he had ever heard of. If you want to become the Pope, you go to Rome. If you want to begin, become an entertainer, you go to America. You go to Las Vegas. That's what it is. Roy always loved an adventure. Siegfried was always the warrior. But Siegfried agreed to go. And, you know, it, it didn't live quite up to their expectations at the Tropicana. The circumstances weren't ideal. The owners weren't so nice. He introduced himself. My name is so-and-so. Who are you? And I was, of course, very surprised. I mean, you hired us. You don't know who I am. He said, don't tell me you're a magician because magic doesn't work in this town. That was actually the welcome in Las Vegas. Opening night is a disaster. Siegfried and Roy have never worked with a live orchestra before, and neither has Chico. In the middle of a routine, Chico suddenly leaps off the stage, right towards the orchestra pit. When their contract at the Tropicana is up, Siegfried and Roy go to Paris. When we celebrated the 80 years of Maurice Chevalier at Lido, Siegfried and Roy. The booker at the Lido in Paris is looking to fill a spot at the club's show in Vegas, so he asks Siegfried and Roy to audition. They nail their performance, and for the second time in their career, they head to America, determined to prove themselves. They refuse to believe that magic's not going to work, not with the way they do it, because for them, magic always works. Las Vegas, here is a breathtaking city built in the middle of deserted, arid nowhere. It's 1970, and the curtains are opening on Siegfried and Roy's new show at the Stardust Resort and Casino. Vegas entertainment is on the rise, but gambling is still the main attraction in Sin City. Money, power, sex, that's what it's all about on the street of streets in Las Vegas. But mostly it's about money. 
when Siegfried and Roy landed in Las Vegas, the Tropicana, the Stardust, all of that was still somewhat mob-influenced. They do things in a big way here. Of course, you can afford to when you have a revenue of more than $100 million a year. Just drink it in, the color, the vulgarity, the scope, and the whole incredible spectacle. Well, I think Las Vegas is for everybody. And uh, it seems in Las Vegas, imagination has no borders. Yeah, the sky is the limits. That's right. Most of the nightlife revolves around Hollywood royalty like Elvis Presley and provocative productions with topless showgirls. But from the moment they arrive, Siegfried and Roy captivate everyone with a campy brand of glitz and glamour that is completely over the top. Now, ladies and gentlemen, behold! It was really about their involvement with these exotic animals, these exotic cats that really made the difference because it was the wow factor. You know, they weren't just trying to levitate a girl. That was old hat. What made it different and made people respond is that there was a little fear. Oh my gosh, can this can this animal get away? The feds say that the Siegfried and Roy shows being investigated for possible violations of the Animal Welfare Act. In 2003, USDA investigator David Neal spends weeks tracking down eyewitnesses, interviewing the security and staff at the Mirage, and combing through records with Clark County Animal Control. But despite all his efforts to determine what really happened that night, he still can't get his hands on one crucial piece of evidence, the videotape, which purportedly captures the moment where Monocor attacks Roy. I think I was told it does not exist. I never stopped believing that a tape existed. I knew in my heart that a tape existed. And it was only a matter of time before we either got the tape or we either told us to shut up and go home. David isn't sure who tells him the tape doesn't exist, but either way, it's strange. Since just days earlier, another investigator has already seen the tape. If I remember correctly, the CEO of Mirage at the time actually had physical possession of that tape. Very, very nice gentleman took us to his office from the showroom and uh, sat us down in his office in front of some televisions where we could watch the, the video. Randy McLaughlin, who oversees crime scene investigations for the police, tells me that on the night of the attack, a copy of the tape is in the possession of the Mirage. He doesn't know why a USDA investigator showing up just days later would have any issues seeing what the police have already seen. I'm kind of surprised that they would not show the tape, but I just remember um, the CEO put it in a vault in his office and indicated that nobody was ever going to see this tape besides the people that were in that room. Oh, he told you that at the time? He made some indication when he put that away that it was going to stay in that safe. And you saw him actually put it into the safe? Yes. It was just a small fire safe in his office. The video, it was very graphic, and I can completely understand why they don't want anybody in the, in the public viewing that. We reached out to MGM, the parent company of the Mirage, but they declined to comment. For what it's worth, I can totally understand why they wouldn't want the general public seeing what is presumably a horrible and graphic video. But David Neal isn't the general public. He's a federal investigator, 
and Las Vegas falls within his jurisdiction. David tells me he soon feels like he's getting the runaround from the people surrounding Siegfried and Roy. I won't understand why until later on. I realized that it was going to take a lot of legwork to complete this investigation properly. One of the old investigators I worked with years ago, he said, Dave, don't leave a stone unturned, turn over all of them. If the person you're investigating tells you no, you still go after what you need, maybe in a different way. And that's what I tried to do. Next time on Wild Things, Siegfried and Roy. They came of age in an era in which were they to perform, being openly queer was just not viable. Are you lovers? I love Roy like my brother. You know, they were as much performing animals as the animals they deployed. They knew the tricks. They did the tricks. They stimulate the fantasy of the audience because without fantasy, there is nothing. Wild Things Siegfried and Roy is an Apple original podcast produced by Atwell Media. Our producer is Alexander Zaslow. Story editors are Matt Hickey and Mandy Gorenstein. Our editor is Rachel Leitner, with help from Andrew Holtzberger. Anne Margaret Warner is our associate producer. Adele Sparks is our archival producer. And Ashley Taylor is our line producer. Fact-checking by Sona Avakian. Our original music and main title are by Robert Keysweater and Jana Bechtold. Audio post-production by 1,000 Birds. Wild Things Siegfried and Roy is executive produced and written by me, Stephen Leckart. Our executive producer from Atwell Media is Will Malnati. The Atwell Media team also includes Dominique Abekwe and Drew Beebe. Legal services provided by Samuel Bayard and Sean Gordon, with representation by Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts.